Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for August 2015. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen Quentin Tarantino interview think piece, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen he was bang on about It Follows and you know it, Paul Anthony Nelson. <laughs> and our very special guest this month is... Hi, I'm Alex Helen Nicholas and I'm in the special guest chair... I'm a film critic on Triple R on Plato's Cave. I'm a team member of the uh, on the editorial team at Senses of Cinema, and I've written some books on stuff that are about film. Um, I've written a book on rape revenge film, a book on found footage horror film, and I'm about to release a new book on Dario Argento's Suspiria. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. I, I hope I can bring the tone down by talking about unwatchable films. <laughs> It's August, so it's time for another Woody Allen film, uh, and this year it's Irrational Man, which is the philosophical crime film. He's always he's got a few of these in him. He likes uh, he likes the subgenre. I don't know what you guys thought. I was frustrated in a sort of positive way, in that there's a glimmer of greatness in there. I can see a great film in there that you know really resembles Match Point or Crimes and Misdemeanors, and it's just. It's sunk by a clumsy narration, like really clumsy narration that if you edited that out, that's like a star up, that, that mm -hmm. bumps it up a star. And this really sort of plodding stop-start pace. Mm -hmm. But I, I did find a lot to admire here. I love Joaquin Phoenix just committing to the continuing stoner performance, <laughs> no matter what he's playing. <laughs> Are we just seeing him in his natural state? Is that what's I happening here? So lower mid-range Woody for me. It's not quite as bad as last year's Magic in the Moonlight, but... It's nowhere near the heights. Well, I haven't seen this one, but I'm happy to talk about the the, the abundance of Woody Allen films. I mean, the, the idea mm. of him being prolific is, a, I think, a point that's been talked about a lot. To me, it almost feels in this later part of his career, like this, this the consistency with which he's pushing stuff out, the velocity with which he's making films, it's almost like a buffer. So that if mm. you didn't like one, then you'll probably like the next one, and here you go mm. at six months later, and here it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it... I, it's that awful, and what I, re what I resent the most is that he, he saw me coming. He saw me coming mm -hmm. decades ago because I like the early funny ones. <laughs> like, yeah. He, yeah. It's like he, he booby-trapped yeah. my disinterest in his later career Imagine by making fun of me before yes. I was born. It like, made you feel like a cliche before Exactly, we exactly. Yeah, look, I completely agree. With a few other rejoinders, I think that yeah, this I think the murder, the philosophical murder business mm. is easily far and away the best stuff in this film. Mm. It's starting to feel like an old man filmmaker. Like Quentin mm. Tarantino talks about this, and sort of when directors enter their old man stage, right, yeah. when they stop feeling relevant and stop kind of being relevant and start, yeah. they become stuck in this weird. And the last two films feel like that for Woody. I, I feel like Blue Jasmine might be the last cry. I don't know. Like, maybe he'll fight back. He always has. Kind yeah, of a lot of people have written interesting. him off before then. Yeah, exactly. So and before that, I mean, there were people writing him off in the 80s. There were mm. people writing him, you know. This and Magic in the Moonlight just feel like old man films. This is much better. But there's so much padding around all this, and it's so kind of plotting and aimless and all interest kind of seeped out of it for me. I, 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 and unfortunately, I think all this backfires for Emma Stone, who feels like the right girl at the wrong time for Woody. She seems such a natural for his style and his films, and she is. But you kind of wish he'd found her when he found Scarlet or when he or before that, you know. Mm. It's, you know, that sort of early 2000s period where he really didn't have that identifiable female lead. Look, I didn't have an awful time with this film, but I just felt that 
yeah, there, there, there was a lot about it that just... And, and a lot of regressive stuff, you know, lines like, I'm so glad you ordered for me, you know, come on. Like, just, yeah, I, yeah, I just didn't really think much of this. Well, another filmmaker who had early funny ones. No, this, this what a terrible segue. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep it in. He's good with this. It yeah, keep it in. Stay uh, strong. So, okay, this month also uh, saw the Melbourne Film Festival, and we saw the new film from Guy Madden, The Forbidden Room. Now, usually we keep to general releases, but, you know, we've covered Guy Madden on the show before, and we like to sort of keep up to date with our previous uh, hyphenate topic directors. And we figure this is probably the only chance we're going to have to talk about The Forbidden Room. So let's do it. Did we all, did we all see? Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Guy Madden is a really special filmmaker. Mm. Um, I, we talked about this a bit on Plato's Cave on Triple R, but I'm just going to repeat myself because it's worth repeating. <laughs> There's nobody doing what Guy Madden does. Yeah. He's a... He is a treasure. He is just a treasure. Um, I don't know how somebody could even imitate what Guy Madden does. Mm. I look at it and it's just so, like, from process to, mm -hmm. like, how do you replicate this? Genuinely passionate, genuinely creative. And what I love about his work and what I think separates him from so many other of the, the kind of uh, recurrent names we get on the festival circuit, so joyful. Yeah. So mm. just so much joy yeah. for the very materiality of filmmaking and the very idea of making pictures move on screen is just magical to him. There's a real childlike mm. joy in what he does. Yeah. And I think The Forbidden Room is, is, for me, it's certainly not his most accessible film. Yeah. Um, I think he's putting that that pretty lightly. I think maybe My Winnipeg or Saddest yeah. Music mm. in the World, if you're new to Guy Madden, they would probably be great places to start. <laughs> but I think that this is the film yeah. where he's been going. I think that this is the point that he's been working towards right. uh, for a really long time. I, I agree completely. I th and it's Almost my. If it wasn't for my Winnipeg, I don't know because I do love that. But this is almost my favorite Madden. Wow! I think they're it's all my children. Incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I found this. I like. I found this film both astonishing and exhausting. And oh, it's, it's funny, hard work, isn't it? I've talked to a lot yeah. of people who, and I was one of them who had like micro sleeps during it because mm -hmm. it throws so much at you. It begins to get overwhelming. And there's so much to process and it's stories within stories within stories and then out of stories and then within stories and back in stories. Essentially, the, 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 the quick skinny on this is he had an art project, an installation project uh, a few years back called Seances where he dug up information uh, on uh, lost or abandoned films mm. and attempted in some way to like and had these kind of mock seances to call them back. Apparently, leaving ectoplasm <laughs> at the end of the day, ectoplasm traces. And so the many, many, many films or fragments of films we see within the Forbidden Room are films from the seances program that have been maddenized. Madden's attempted to bring them back from the dead through his own bizarre filter. Yeah. Um, so things like how to take a bath and the submarine it. thing and uh, our, our all and the last derriere, which the is der this. the derriere song is a highlight. Oh, <laughs> starring Udo Kier, our favourite. Um, and also with people, that idea of I mean that materiality of bringing things back into memory. Um, I love this idea that that's a kind of material, almost like a kind of wormhole that cinema can be. So you get that not just in the textures of the film, but in the casting of people like Geraldine Chapman, mm. uh, Chaplin, sorry, Charlie Chaplin's daughter. I think mm. she's about 71 yeah, right. now. And a it's remarkable actor in her own right. But, you know, Udo Kier, these names that sort of, even mm. not going back that far, people like Eleanor Lowenson. Yeah. Um, 
who I know from Hal Harley films. films. I grew yeah. up with those kind of films. And I love that. I just love this idea of memory, of film being a kind of tangible tunnel that, that memory can work through. It's mm. just it's just exquisite. And I think that there is that dreamlike that you can kind of doze off a little bit and mm. come back. It's not – you'd be stretched to say that this is any kind of uh, linear yeah, story yeah. or anything. Well, it does feel like one. the um, manifestation of, a, of like a fever dream. Yeah. Like yeah. This, Absolutely. And, yeah. and some of the things he does technically, like that whole – uh, burning or sort of morphing from one mm. sort of bit of film to the next, and it's just—it's—I've never seen anything that looks like this. You wouldn't think he'd take to digital and CGI effects, but he's found a way to make it work with—he's not working his for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. He's making them work for him. The opening credits alone are a work yes. of art. Yes. Didn't you just want to swim in those? Uh, that was done. I was like, film of the year. I'm going home. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> hang it up. At its best, this film destroyed anything that came up against it at MIF. The two things that held it back a little bit were one, the exhaustion level, and two, it didn't feel as emotionally grounded as some of his other films. Like some of his other films, like Saddest Music in the World, Brand Upon the Brain, and My Winnipeg Pack a Real Punch, yeah. and kind of feel like they're about like. Whereas this is sort of about itself in a way, and I think that that's the one thing that kind of makes it. Near the top of Madden, but not quite the top. I've, I, I agree with your point. For me, I felt that something, I mean, we'll, we'll go with saddest music in the world um, because I think it's a really, and maybe my Winnipeg as well, but part of what it was referencing was melodrama. Mm. So that, that that kind of emotional impact was sort of built into the trajectory the of what he was trying to do with it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And in My Winnipeg, I think the casting of Anne Savage in My Winnipeg, I think as well, it has this very concrete call back to a kind of emotional, a dark emotional cinema-like film noir, mm. you know, and it's very explicit yeah. in just in the casting of her alone. I don't know whether that was part of what he was trying to, yeah. the vision of it. I mean, this idea of just calling memories back, of mm. calling the idea of films as ghosts or material as ghosts. The impact is more sensory, mm. I think, than emotional. Yeah. So that the idea is that it kind of runs across the surface of your eyes rather than seeps in, which mm. all of his films have done to some degree, but I wonder if that's the payoff. Yeah. In that by losing that emotional affect, what you get is a double whammy of the kind of um, sensory impact. That yeah. certainly that was my experience of it. It was the it was the film of his I think I found the most difficult to watch. Yeah. yeah. In that um, I didn't have a plot to follow. I mean there was there was a plot. Yeah. But I described it as a Mandelbrot of narrative. So oh, maybe that's we beautiful. should coin Mandelplot. <laughs> Mandelplot. Mandelplot. There is. It's funny you say the ghost thing. Like he considers because throughout his career that's been said about him that he considers films like ghosts, yeah. like spiritual vehicles and so that really buys into your concept of this is what he's been working towards the whole time. that kind of spirit photography yeah. capturing things that have been lost spectral um, traces of very films. kind of victorian you know that whole kind of even though the the kind of past that he refers to mm. i mean in this film we have lots of different kinds of past lots of different eras i love there's a little sequence with a woman on a motorbike she has a motorcycle accident goes to yes. the hospital but it's a kind of i mean that's a more recent history i think than the the more older Victorian -y kind of stuff. But this, uh, yeah, this very Victorian idea of sensationalism and sensation mm. and, you know, the spiritualist, you know, he's a kind, yes. of, a kind of cinematic spiritualist, but without it being as wanky as I'm yeah. making that sound because <laughs> it's always with a sense of humour. It's always exactly. funny it's and so fun funny. and cheeky, like just yeah. really sassy and just so much joy in what he does. He might be the best way to filter out shit critics in that you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that where he's like X and Y yeah. because there's nobody like Madden. Yeah. Um, I mm. think Cerise Howard, I may be wrong here, but I think she flagged Bill Morrison mm. um, just in terms of the materiality, you know, this fascination with old film. But that's not a – he's not like Bill Morrison. 
You know, like yeah. there's not that kind of reference. Not, I mean, there's yeah. nobody doing what Madden does. Funny you should say that because there's another filmmaker. Who's doing what Madden covered. does? No, no, who isn't doing what Madden oh. does, but, but also oh. has <laughs> his own very distinctive style. And there's no one doing what this person does. Roy Anderson, hey. who we covered on the show uh, many moons ago. Now, we're going even further away from the films of the month rule here because when we, when we decided to do Forbidden Room, we went, well, there's another filmmaker that we've covered who's made a new film and it's just not, it's probably not going to come out. I mean, it's on the festival circuit and we saw it and if it's not going to get a release, then why the hell shouldn't we talk about it? And that's a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. And then found out afterwards that the Australian Centre for the Moving Image are going to run it for a limited season in October, October 29th. Yep. But we couldn't wait that long. Yeah. You, but We've already what? By the time you met, you told me that. It was like, ah, screw it. We've committed. <laughs> Let's just talk about it. Um, yeah. Anderson, uh, Anderson, sorry. This is the final part of his human trilogy uh, that encompasses 2000's Songs from the Second Floor and 2007's You the Living. When you read uh, reviews about his work, I think that the most common word that turns up is tableau. Tableau, yeah. yes. yeah, I mean, that's tableau. what they are. I, I, yes. I can't remember who it was, but there was a wonderful, run, wonderful review I read of this film, and the critic called it uh, sketch tragedy. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm done. I'm going home. There's nothing more I can add. That's exactly yes. what it is. I mean, it's, it's sketch tragedy. But this idea of the tableau, that you have a frame with things in the frame, you're always conscious of the frame. And, yeah, these micro micro dramas that take place um within that frame mm. it's always his sense of scale in his work is is insane you know the macro and the micro yeah yeah and constant tension and you're constantly aware of it and that act of boredom of being bored <laughs> is such a an aggressive part of what he does yeah you know that that threat of being bored mm. and of missing something you know the, the idea that there's nothing big happening mm. but everything is big i love that sense of confusion just i get i get scale sickness like the seasick yeah. equivalent sort of scale thrown i remember there was a shot where there were all these people in it and there was a woman crying and i spent at least two minutes searching the frame for who it was and it, and and, oh, wow. and no one moved like there was something happening in the background it was just still i was like ah oh, there we go they the ones sitting at the bar there we go yeah she's crying <laughs> there was immaculately composed mm. As well as beautiful kind of lighting and deep focus, and yeah, it's very painterly. I yes. think that's a real yeah. cliche when you start talking about filmmakers of his caliber. The idea that they're like that they're like art. It's it's you know art film. It's like a painting. It starts getting a little bit mm. tenuous there. But the title comes from I believe uh, it's a reference to the 1565 painting "The Hunter in the Snow" by Peter Bruegel the Elder, which as a an aside. Uh, is made reference to an Adario Argento film ah, that we might talk about yeah. later. Um, but that painting's not in the film, but yeah, yeah. The, the title comes from a reference to that painting. But it, they do remind me of paintings, and I love mm. that, the, that the title is really flagging this kind of art historical, mm. you know, that idea of a Bruegel painting where there's so much going on in the frame and you stand there and you look at it and it's only over time that you pick up the drama. Mm. You know, it's not this kind of high-impact action. It's this slow revealing of what's going on, this sort of really fascinating... Just time and space, like real nuts and bolts, smart filmmaker mm. stuff, just experimenting with how we comprehend time and space. Yeah, mm. totally, totally. I mean, it's it's a really dark film, but I do find it really funny. There's a mm. couple of characters that um, I just I just love that sell novelties, like joke yeah. novelties, and they're just um, like like whoopee cushions. What do they call them? They call them l laugh bags or something. Yeah, oh, yeah, the bags. <laughs> yeah, 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 little yeah. jokey kind of things and vampire teeth. And mm. the, the, I mean, it's an absurd 
it's an absurd setup, but mm. what makes it so perfect is that they're the least funny people you could possibly <laughs> imagine, and all of their interactions are incredibly bleak and dark. Yeah, and it's just the, and, and they also, remind me a lot of Aki Karismaki. I, yeah, I, I when I was the watching them, which I you know, it's it Scandinavian him. and yeah. it's Charismaki, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's Finland and it's Sweden, but yeah. I. They, they in particular, they yes. had a strong air of the charismatic. I thought the exact same thing, um, but just in the more in their in more in the kind of um, the in their character mm. um, than than the kind of formal construction. I think that yeah. uh, Anderson's doing something very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah from, from charismatic. But and I love with those guys also that even though we find the Anderson films really funny, that this is what constitutes humour within the world of Anderson's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like here here are some vampire teeth. These these are fun. <laughs> we, you're going to die soon. Just <laughs> awful. <laughs> just so like oh, I'm, so I'm actually good. folding up and kind of clenching and flinching just thinking about these awful, oh, these terrible, terrible, terrible moments that these characters selling these ghastly, trashy things. So good. So this month we return to our mini hyphenate segment in which we focus on a filmmaker who has retired or left this mortal coil having made less than five feature films. And the person we're looking at today is probably the person that's made the least amount of feature films of anyone we're focused on, Turk Harvey, who made hundreds of industrial shorts but uh, in one shining moment um, gathered in the early 60s, gathered together his, uh, $33,000 and his industrial film Cronies and made this horror film called Carnival of Souls, which has since become a cult sensation over the last 50 years. And yeah, I just find him fascinating. He is, and it's incredibly frustrating to watch for Carnival of Souls and realise he didn't make more films. Yeah. Because you look at that eye and you think, God, if he made that on his first go out, what 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 career did we miss out on? Like it, it's not. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that David Lynch and George Romero mm. would be familiar with this film. Oh, I think they're very yeah. kind of that. That's an influence that's worn on their sleeves. I mean, Romero was an industrial filmmaker as well, so I think that they're a really um, a really important point of comparison, actually. And um, it's it's funny because so is Alt, uh, Robert Altman. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah and it's true. like all three of them have come from this exact same background, making industrial films, and whereas Altman and Romero clearly had an eye on becoming feature filmmakers, from everything I've read about Herc Harvey, he didn't. He's got, he had this very, he was very proud of his industrial work and, and sort of, you know, worked on various, worked in commercials um, years later and, mm. and worked until the late 90s, I believe, and made, you know, sort of four hundred, four or 500 works. And this feature film thing was just something he was kind of trying out, and maybe this would be a thing. And then they didn't make. I think at the time it didn't make money, and so it, they. No, I think that, and I think that's a big difference with somebody like Romero. Is that Romero? Night of the Living Dead was a game changer, mm. uh, not just for him personally, but for film. I mean, yeah. the way that that Hollywood history played out, or film history played out, that shift from classical Hollywood to the more kind of you know new Hollywood independent cinema. I mean, Night of the Living Dead, I think, you can't overstate how important it was no. just in that historical narrative. Carnival of Souls doesn't have that. Uh, it wasn't that big a deal at the time. People really didn't see it, and if they did, they didn't really like it, is my understanding. Mm. Mm. And unlike an Altman whose two indie films flopped and then he kind of went to television, he seemed very focused on getting to L.A. and being in the industry and being... Whereas Hurt just kind of went back to doing what he knew how to do. And it's funny because since it's become a cult film and it's even it's it's in the Criterion Collection, so it's really well regarded. And when Harvey's been called in to do interviews or uh, conventions or whatever, he often said he, apparently he's been quoted as saying um, that 
It's funny. I've had this huge career, and all anybody wants to talk to me about are these five weeks. Hmm. Five weeks, 40 years ago. Which is interesting, because I think one of the reasons so many filmmakers like doing cinema is because of all the visual art forms. It's the eternal one. We canonise feature films, but we don't canonise industrial films. He clearly, in his head, doesn't see a separation between Mm. the works, you know, uh, as far as I can tell. It's it's a pretty special work, though. Mm. Scary as hell. Amazing. I mean, without giving away spoilers, um, it's 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 a a twist that has got um, mainstream legacy. I think we could say that mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's there's two films that I can think of off the top of my head that are hugely kind of popular mainstream films that use that same ending. There was a beautiful screening of this at the recital hall in March this year that had a live not just a live soundtrack but also live dialogue they had actors on oh, stage wow. with microphones yeah. performing the script by a New Zealand company called Live Live Cinema but it was just magical seeing Carnival so I was acing it on a big screen yeah. but having it kind of brought to life in that particular mm. way and what I found really fascinating about the audience watching it was I, I would say that there was 50-50 people who hadn't seen it people who had the initial uh, retro kitsch aspects of it I think there was a bit of giggling um in that you know it's an old film Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a bit camp and a bit stagey and you know the performances certainly the performances were playing up to that aspect of it for laughs Mm -hmm. but it's of course a really dark film Mm -hmm. and a really beautiful film and just watching the audience respond to that shift in tone yeah in this film as you're watching it if you go in to watch it oh there's this kind of funny old black and white horror film with a bit of an eye roll it doesn't really allow you that that luxury, mm. um, because I think that when this film turns, and it does really turn, it goes somewhere that is indefinable. Mm. And I think that's the magic of it. I think that that's what makes this film. I think the performances are absolutely Yeah, um, I think remarkable. Candace Hilligos is fantastic. She only lady. did one other film. Um, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with her performance in mm. this film because I think she, it's very weighty. I think she carries a lot of the weight yeah. of this film. Um, and it's a good character too. It's a great like a character. great female character. Yeah. I mean, it, it basically sort of, plots her through a sort of post-trauma, you know, a kind of recovery thing, I guess, yeah. is how you'd roughly describe her, mm. her character trajectory. Or, yeah, PTSD is a great way to describe it. Yeah. Really, yeah. But she's fantastic. I mean, mm. she's really fantastic kind of, you know, straddling this, you know, sanity, you know, that, that kind of cliched line, I guess, in a lot of horror film of women straddling sanity and, and mm. what they are the most frightened of. Mm. You know, this kind of looming insanity, this sense of being out of control, which manifest in you know sexuality and things like that which are tackled in a really interesting way in this yeah. film there's sort of looming sexual threat and not around like, every corner yeah and not like other films like in terms of her i'm um, always shocked by the sexuality in this film yeah. as a male neighbor and her mm. interactions with him i find and she's really, really strong though like this is a, she's no screaming kind of uh you know skittish person yeah. like she's a really strong character i love the f- a film being made in the early 60s about someone who is hired as a church organist who could give a fuck about the church. It's yeah. amazing. And about religion. And she's just like, this is a job. Yeah. I, don't, I, I reject this. is, and It's like, a, wow. v- a vocal atheist. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a really great character moment. And am I right in thinking Hurt Carvey plays? He's the, the, the apparition. He's the man, wow. I think he's called the in man, the credits. Yeah. He appears... Um, He's one of the ghostly visages that she sees throughout the film. Yeah. The main one. The, the kind yeah, of yeah, ghostly yeah. visage, yep. yeah. Oh, Which is one I love it when directors put themselves in kind of these villainous cameos of Ferrara in Miss 45. And, and um, Driller Killer. Driller Killer is like the classic mm. example of that. But there's a lovely kind of um, self 
reflexive, you know, that the director is beast or monster. That it's like, <laughs> terrorising like, his fun. actors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a $33,000 film made in the early 60s, there are a couple of craft issues. Some of the ADRs a bit dodgy and things like that, but there's images in this film that are pulled straight from nightmares. Mm. Apparently, Hervey was driving past the Salt Air Pavilion in Salt Lake City in Utah, and he saw it, and that's where the idea for the film came from. And even if you just Google up images from this film, you'll see this space, this yeah. amazing old abandoned pavilion. That's where the magic happens for me. Yeah. These sort of unspoken sequences that go on in that in that building, this old abandoned kind of funfair mm. carnival space are just... Yeah. Just the stuff of, um, of legends, like and, really beautiful uh, and really terrifying. Even the bits like when she looks out, you know, look, looks down the staircase and there he is. This film is really unnerving. And mm. for someone to just, as you say, like just have that Lynchian quality of just hitting that nightmare button straight out of the box. That's a lovely idea, actually. It's a lovely way to frame this film and, and his work as a as a, a film director, as a feature film director, is that he just got it so perfect the first go, he didn't need to do it again. Yeah. yeah. Listen, listen up, Woody Allen. One for one. <laughs> like, the guy, like, he, he hit it out of the park straight away. He's done going back to making ads. Yeah. That's it's cool. Like, I can't get that. <laughs> I know there's something so admirable about making one film and going... I did it, I'm out. But at the same time, I wouldn't have minded a few missteps if it meant he could develop these skills yeah. further and we got a whole filmography out of it. Yeah. What about other genres, you know? What would it be like seeing Herc Harvey take on a Western or Herc Harvey take on a, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> a comedy or, yeah. Or yeah. even staying in horror and doing colour. Yeah. yeah, right. Because, I mean, the things that he was doing with just, just light and... and um, and tone mm. uh, with black and white photography in that film is quite striking and really quite diverse if you think about the more domestic scenes in, in her bedroom in particular um, and you compare that to the really high contrast stuff that's going on at the fairground, what's it called, the pavilion. Mm. Yeah. Really quite different ways of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that that's made by somebody who comes from a an experienced background with just making making images. Yeah, yeah. You know, just from a photographic background, you can really sense that there's something. So, Alex, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenate's Filmmaker of the Month. It is Dario Argento. Ah, uh, of course. It's no, no surprises there, I suspect, <laughs> seeing I've already flogged the book. I have written on Dario Argento. Can I mention it again, that I've written a book on Dario Argento? <laughs> Sorry, you wrote a what? On who? So there's this Italian horror director called Dario Argento. You guys oh. might, yeah, if you'd like to know more about him, I can recommend a book on Suspiria. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about Argento that, that uh, draws you to him? That's a really good question. It's a great place to start, actually. Without going too much of my uh, personal background, I'm what I term a biological Catholic. Um, <laughs> I was raised Catholic and therefore was sort of forbidden. Horror was always the forbidden fruit, which pretty much destined me to become a horror fan. Um, <laughs> the thing, you know, the return of the repressed and all of that. So, yeah, like I, I came to horror, I would say, late because I was not allowed to watch it as a, as a child. But I think that that meant that when I did come to it, I came to it with a, a, a double fascination, you know, that, that power of the taboo. And Dario Argento, I think, has always stood out to me, particularly his early work, as being the great visual artist of horror. He understands how colour and movement and shape and sound, aside from things like plot and, mm. and storyline and character, mm. just, just, just shape and colour moving, yeah. how that, that can be a really primal source of terror on a really fundamental level yeah. and also a really beautiful experience. I find that his films are, are so often just so beautiful and really poetic. He's a visual stylist 
as much as a kind of poet of horror, I think. And I think that his films are unparalleled. I was introduced to Argento's work on VHS and yeah. even specifically in terms of Suspiria, actually, it's a really interesting phenomena, I think, for me because I saw them on clapped out VHS. Mm. So I really liked Suspiria, but it was never really one of my favourite Argento films until I saw it on DVD. Now, I'm a bit of an, an old school analogue purist. I still have a lot of VHS. I love watching VHS. It wasn't until I saw Suspiria on DVD, though, that I realised what I'd been missing out because I'd seen this really old washed out VHS where all the colours had been yeah. quite murky and it was just a life-changing experience watching it on on, the colors are so on DVD where it was just like that Technicolor pop just blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, you associate horror with that kind of Caligari, very dark, very shadowy and then there is this film which is just revelling in Technicolor like really aggressively, forcefully bombarding yeah. you with colour. Was this a, was it shot in the three-strip technical yes, process? Yes, it was, it was I th not the last. It was certainly yeah. one of the last. We'll get to Suspiria in depth perhaps shortly further, but it was an interesting – if you talk about the editing of this film to people who were involved, apparently it was a very fast film to edit mm. because they just didn't have that much footage. They were using the last of the stock. Oh, wow. So they actually didn't have a huge amount of material to work through. They were just shooting for the yeah, edit. Yeah, yeah. But Argento started off as a writer, didn't he? He was writing other people's films, mostly horror, but also amazingly Once Upon a Time in the West. That's He, he came up with the story for that with Bernardo Bertolucci. Mm, that, um, Argento was born into a film family, so his yes. father uh, is a film uh, industry person. Argento has said that one of his first memories as a child is sitting on Sophia Loren's knee, <laughs> which is pretty hot, like, you've got to say. Okay, as far as childhood memories go, that's, that's up there. Yeah. He started off as a film critic. Ah, Argento started right. off as a film critic, which I think is really fascinating for the, because I'm a film critic. <laughs> I'm not a complex woman. Um, and, yeah, and he sort of went from being a film critic for a newspaper to script writing. So, yeah, famously teamed up with Bertolucci uh, when Sergio Leone got him on board to come up with the story. That's like the 92 Dream Team. That. Yeah, pretty much. It's that amazing. It's amazing. It? That, that credit always blows me away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are these three people doing in the same room? To, um... Monsters of Rock. But yeah, he had. He seemed to have written a number of them before directing his first film in 1970. So. He did. Which he is did. kind of interesting considering where his film career would go, like how story becomes not important and yeah. how like suddenly logic becomes not important and but all he... those things that are prized by, you would think are prized by film critics and screenwriters, mm. he kind of throws out of the window. Yeah. He's hugely film literate. I mean, if you listen to him talk about his influences. I mean, Hitchcock's a really obvious one, mm. but you know, Chabrol, Godard, you know, like he, obviously, you know, Fellini, mm. his, his influences are, are proper grown-up films. You know, he's, mm. a, he's a hugely literate cinephile himself and was from quite a very young age just from growing up in that industry. And so he went to directing because I think he wanted to see his scripts done right. <laughs> he wanted them done the way that he felt that they should have been done, which led him to his first film, Bird with Crystal Plumage. In terms of, because I see this and I go, that's a very distinctive debut, that's a very distinctive style, but how much is influenced by someone like Barva? Okay, that's a really good question. Him. So, Bird with Crystal Plumage and the rest of it, it's the first of the Animal Trilogy. Mm. So, the Animal Trilogy are very, very famous giallo films, but Argento didn't create the giallo film. Italian horror... Obviously, I mean, you just need to look at opera or the paintings of Caravaggio. Like, the sense of horror, of body horror, is embedded in the Italian cultural imagination. Um, not a lot of early Italian horror. There's little oddities here. People like uh, Eugenio Testa, Carmine uh, Golone, Alessandro Blasetti. I've mispronounced all of the names of I these love excellent you filmmaking. I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the big names, I think, are um, 50s and 60s Italian horror. The big 
the big names are Mario Bava, of course, and Ricardo Freda, who Argento was cited as just as much an influence as Bava. Right. So Argento was very much working in this tradition. There mm. were other filmmakers, you know, Giallo was kind of a thing by the time he came along in 1970. Yeah. But Bird with Crystal Plumage was massive. I mean, it was just massive. The cinematographer for Suspiria was a chap called Luciano Tavoli, who I spoke to a lot. Uh, when I was writing the book, a beautiful man. He was the cinematographer for Antonioni's The Passenger. Right. Um, he's Holy crap. He still, he still works. He works a lot with Barbe Schroeder. Mm. Uh, he's a remarkable man, a very generous, very intelligent, passionate man who he speaks of filming movies as an art. He doesn't talk as a technician. But he has this great story that the first time he really had any inkling of, uh, to Dario Argento as to who he was, is that he was living between two cinemas mm. uh, in Rome and he – heard all this noise outside and he ran out and looked out and there were two cinemas that were showing the bird with crystal plumage on either side of where he was and people were literally running out of one screening from one cinema running down the road to the next cinema to go and see it again wow i mean it was it was just massive people went berserk for this film they just loved it wow um and it's i mean i think it's a great fun i think it's 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 a really solid film film. it's It's a great debut and and it kicks in so many of the tropes that we come to recognise in, in Argento's work, mm. this self-referentiality, you know, this referencing art, mm. paintings, things like this. They're yeah, always right. really – paintings hold clues. Images can lie. Yeah. All of these kind of ideas are really – I mean, we see them go right through to films like the Stenthal Syndrome. Yeah. Now, he's he went on to uh, his second film, uh, the second part of the Animal Trilogy, The Cat and Nine Tales, mm. which is sort of – it was kind of less than a year later. It was sort of 70, 71, and then mm. after that, Four Flies on Grey Velvet – in 71. Yeah. They seem to be all variations on a theme. Like they kind of, the, those two films feel like reduxes of Bird with the Crystal Plumage to me. They do a bit, but there's also... Four Flies and Grey Velvet in particular. Well, Cat and Nine Tales, he augments it with like his Hitchcock obsession because there are so much that's right out of To Catch a Thief from yeah. the chase on the rooftop to there are shots when, you know, the woman driving fast and the man sitting there, like, clutching his leg. Like, I know to catch a thief back to front. And so I was looking at those shots going, I know exactly which bit wow. he's taking from. Cat and Tales is a really interesting one, I think. It's, it's kind of got the reputation of one of the lesser earlier Argento films. Mm. Um, and I think a, a, quite a few people have started to rethink that in the last couple of years. Um, but what gets me with this film is that every time I watch it, I sit down and I think, okay, we're kind of going through the motions. Like, you know, the, the groundwork has been established with Bird with Crystal Plumage. I am always really shocked by the ending, mm. the total ambivalence and the viciousness of the ending of, a cat, of The Cat of Nine Tails. Like, I just I find it really shocking mm. um, what he does at the end of that film, a very violent, not in terms of what you see, but there's a particular taboo, I think, regarding children mm. in horror that he really plays with in that film that is always very ex- unexpected to me. He likes the idea of using children in his films. Like, some real talk here. <laughs> a lot of things. There are some really familiar themes and shots and plot devices that echo throughout nearly every single one of his films. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's, it's always a killer's point of view with a glove and a knife. And often it's usually always Argento's hand, by the way. Is it yeah. right? Yeah. And it's all which and, becomes particularly hashtag problematic when he's strangling his ex-wife in films. <laughs> There's often a crazy woman behind it, and that's the twist. Is you didn't think a woman would do? Yes, I've watched your last five films. I, did, I actually did think <laughs> and a woman it's almost would do. always an artist. 
is the protagonist. Of, yeah, a lot of the time, art art is a really important. Yeah, like an opera thematic. Particularly, I mean, he's very very self-reflexive. Dancer, a painter, a, very a music. Yeah, a lot of bands. It always starts with. Mm. I mean, what, what's the one with uh, David Hemmings, Deep Red, that Deep starts Red. with? Beautiful. I, I'm a piano player. Here's my jazz band, and then it's just relevant for the rest of the film. Like, <laughs> he sometimes tells people, "I'm a jazz pianist," but that's about it. Like. There's a great book on giallo film uh, called La Dolce Morte by a guy called uh, Michael Coven. He really emphasises the ambivalence of the giallo film and I think that that's a word that's really crucial to Argento across the board. There's, his films are marked and I think that's what makes them so dramatically different if you're really used to American genre film. Mm -hmm. There's an ambivalence at work in Argento's films and, and in other Italian horror films but particularly Argento, uh, just, not just in terms of gender. Mm. Um, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on and often quite hypocritical and contradictory stuff going on in his films with gender that I find endlessly fascinating. The really interesting point in his career, like for me, is when he makes The Five Days ah. in 73 because <laughs> you can feel that he's, you know, I've made my horror trilogy. I'm going to try something else. I, I want to Well, it's explore. not even quite horror. It's more thriller. Trilogy, yeah, man, really. Thriller. Yeah, gory like, it's more Hitchcocky. I love Four Flies for the record. Oh, that's, yeah. that there's some real innovation. That's in when there, you yeah. get the real. Okay, this is a mastermind in terms of of, of stylist. Like he's a, he's a mastermind stylist. Four Flies is worth flagging too because for years it got caught up in um, distribution limbo. That was the holy grail for decades for horror fans. Mm. Um, you just couldn't get it. It only came out on DVD a couple of years ago for wow. the first time. But, um, but the five days. Yeah, and he, how he, did you go with that? I I really enjoyed it. I, I liked it too. It's it's shaggy for a while, and then it sort yeah. of it begins to crystallise as to what it's doing. Because it's a real like it's a it's an historical, but it's also a comedy, and it's political. Like, yeah. very yep. political. Yeah, but also very violent, but also very jaunty. It's like I yeah. I, I think I just I, I thought of it going through my head. It's like this is like a car crash between Francis Verbeer and Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like what the fuck is this? The thing that makes me always think is how funny his other films are. Mm. There's real humour in the Bud Spencer character in Four Flies in, on um, Grey Velvet. Yeah, where he yeah. plays a character called God. Yes. Um, or Godfrey, but they call him God yeah, for short. And every it. time when they introduce him, there's like, oh, like funny stuff. Yeah. Really funny. Also they the got, weird postman they, who keeps getting attacked. The, the porn-loving yeah. postman, and then they go to they, they go to like a coffin conference or something. Yes. Like, yeah. I mean, I think Deep Red is really funny too. I think there's well, real comedy in Deep Red, but the Five Days I think really shows that it's very Argento playful. Has a, has a yeah. flair for comedy, and it's got a great ending. And even if it is a bit rambling, it's uh, it really comes together. And I think it's a really like underrated film. But it failed. Like, didn't it just? It crash. was a disaster. And it does it was feel. A disaster. And I'm going to credit you with this, Lee, because I've you have written this. But um, it feels akin to something like Daku Saka. Oh uh, yeah, yep. the, the Sergio Leone film, like mm. in dealing with that sort of that weird kind of tension of historical action drama and mm. and and comic character comedy. Thieves accidentally caught up in in something history. a lot bigger than them. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And. And, and it crashed and burned, and so we maybe lost something there. But yeah, on the I other hand, so yeah, because he retreats to horror it, in it a was way. A, a super interesting moments. Uh, Lucio Fulci, another Italian genre mm. film director, known very much for horror, he once in an interview said that you couldn't be considered an auteur unless you worked in a, a number of genres. Yeah. Clearly having a dig at Argento, I think. <laughs> he doesn't say Argento specifically, but I think that's who he was going for. Right. And I, I often think about that because I, 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 I disagree. Mm. I mean, I just disagree. But I could, you very much can just look at, at uh, Argento's filmography and you can sense, okay, he got really burnt by the five days, mm. you know, after the huge success 
uh, in Italy especially, of, of the Animal Trilogy, he just decided, you know, okay, I'm going to go back. But he didn't go straight on from Five Days to, to Deep Red. Interestingly, um, 1972, so this is just before the Five Days came out, he tried to get a version of Frankenstein off the ground, oh, yeah. which I think is really interesting. 1973, he started doing TV. He did a great TV series that he produced called um, Door into Darkness, which is now on DVD, which is fantastic. So four episodes, he produced the whole thing, and he kind of does these Hitchcock Presents style introductions. Further strengthening um, that comparison. Yeah, but of course then Deep Red. Deep the Red. Great I Deep mean, Red. Deep Red feels like his Annie Hall. It feels like the... I love that so much. And your, it's like early Argento transitioning into into it's second his, phase. That's that's a wonderful description. <laughs> but the thing, one of the things I love about Deep Red is the sense of place. Like, we were talking about the tableaus of, of Anderson before. And, like, so many shots in this are so... Like, he lingers on these external locations. And, it, like, half of them feel like Edward Hopper paintings, mm. which is totally unlike anything he does at any other point. Deep yeah. Red's just one of his best films. It's I think, fantastic. Hands down. I think it's really funny. Yeah. I think it's really clever. I mean, getting David Hemmings in a film that's really extending on so many of the themes from Antonioni's Blow Up. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. very much a, it's in dialogue with Blow Up. I don't yeah. think yeah. it's a. I don't think it's a rip off. I think yeah, it's yeah, really it's clearly in dialogue with that film and this idea of art holding secrets. It's a film about art holding secrets. Mm. It's a bit like De Palma's Blow Out. Yeah, I think the yeah. three of them are a perfect yeah. trilogy. And it's um, yeah, and it's great. I mean, the the villain does get taken out like he's O.J. Simpson in The Naked Gun, <laughs> but. <laughs> It's a pretty great film, nonetheless. And then he made um, Suspiria in 77. But anyway, Inferno in 1980. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, between Deep Red and... So Deep Red was massive. And Mm. on the back of that, he started working on a... uh, Wanting to do an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera, which, of Uh, course, he didn't get back to until 1998, which he made with his daughter, Asia. Um, He also looked at doing a Lovecraft adaptation at this point, which, if you're a horror fan, the thought of Argento doing a Lovecraft adaptation between Deep Red and Suspiria. Yeah, let's say pretty much mid-70s Argento. As good as it gets. Doing that. Yes. Um, probably, probably quite correctly, Argento felt that he would have been too restricted by doing an adaptation. Mm. So mm. he turned to, you know, the the folkloric idea of the witch. Yeah. Um, and that, that led him to Suspiria. This is it. This is yeah. as good as um, it gets. It's, it's a masterpiece, and I don't throw that word around lightly. Because <laughs> you do begin to realise, as you are saying early on, as you're watching these films, like, okay, he's about sound and vision. He's a sen- it's about sensory horror rather than any sort of logical law. Having said that, I always find the motives for his killers are always really sketchy, if not completely flimsy, and the most believable ones are these witches' movies. It's witches protecting their turf. Yeah. It's like, that completely makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the, th- the three witches trilogy, so we have this, we have Inferno, and we have the three mothers. It's it's kind of what it says on the packet. Yeah. There's, there's three three mothers, they're three sisters, and they're witches, and they the mo- just kind of want to fuck things up. Yeah, like they want power, and and it's just about so the mother of sighs, the mother of tears, and the mother of I have them written down. Uh, Our Lady of Sighs, Our Lady of Tears, and Our Lady of Darkness, Darkness. is where we get it from the uh, De Quincey essay. Uh, Lavana and Our Ladies of Sorrows from the book Suspiria de Profundis, which is Sires from the Depth, which is what it's, of course, all based on. Daria Nicolodi apparently brought this to Argento's attention and she says, Suspiria is right. a good name for a film. Let's let's work on this. Let's work around these three sisters or three witches, three mothers idea mm. and kind of go mm. from there. So they kind of built the film around that. Nicolodi was a hugely important behind-the-scenes person in the creation of this film. To what degree there's still debate yeah. about some kind of he said, she said stuff going on. I mean, it's just sound and vision. 
it just it's just an assault and a very conscious deliberate assault from the outset what i love about suspiria is that the whole thing oh i wonder what the secret of this dance school is oh i wonder what's going on here it tells you in the first 30 seconds yeah. when you hear in the soundtrack which <laughs> it's, I mean, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's really funny. There's a, a British um, film academic called Patricia McCormack who said of Suspiria that, um, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, but it demands that you experience film in a different way. Yeah. On a really fundamental level, that's what makes it radical. It asks you to, to experience a movie mm. and to think through it and to feel through it in ways that you haven't before. And that's what makes this such an important and such a special film for me. And in no small part to the work of Goblin, it's Claudio incredible. Simonetti and Goblin's mm -hmm. score as well, which just marries with that, with that visual mania so completely. Argento is a person who is talked about in very different ways in terms of gender politics and film. Mm. And what I find interesting about him is that I don't think he's either or. Um, I think he's done some really amazingly progressive stuff and at the same time I think there's stuff that's maybe not so progressive. Mm. But I don't think you can stake a claim on either side. This is a female ensemble film. Yeah, I mean, there's, absolutely. there's a couple of male characters in this, but they're so minor. I actually have to – I know this film very well and I have to stop and think through who those male characters are yeah. and what they do and what their function is. Yeah. And um, it's not much. Mm. I mean, this is a film about – it's not just about the monstrous feminine. It's about different kinds of femininity. Different ages is something mm. that I think needs to be really flagged. You know, Alida Vali uh, is in this. She's another big Italian film star. She was in the Paradine case, the Hitchcock film. Mm. I mean, these are real superstars. Joan Bennett, you know, amazing roles for older women. Mm. You know, more of that, please. Yeah. No, absolutely. Then he goes to Inferno in 1980, uh, set in Rome and New York. More music students. Yeah. <laughs> Loves his music students. Keith Emerson I, this time? Yes. Instead of Goblin? Going nuts. Mm -hmm. uh, now, look, I don't, like, I don't think this film is anywhere near Suspiria in terms of structure or story and that, but visually, I think it's almost its equal. There's, There's some phenomenal visuals in this yeah. film. People it like Kim amazing. Newman, there's some pretty hardcore Argento fans that peg this as the best. Wow. Over Suspiria. And I have to admit, this is the film that the more that I watch it, the more I come around to it. I still can't. The reveal at the end with the crappy skeleton yeah, suit, yeah, yeah. I really struggle with that. I do love <laughs> this film on a really yeah. deep level, but that's what stops me. I yeah. just... uh, it made me think of it with uh, 82's Tenebrae because there's no sense, even in the non-supernatural films beforehand, you still feel there might be something supernatural going on. That's and this one's just like, there's no supernatural, this is a murder mystery with a slasher kill. and serial killer movie. Yeah. That binary between the Gialli and the supernatural film is one that's very much come from the outside. Argento's on the record very much saying, I've got the quote here, I think that's an artificial distinction. I don't see a great difference between them. The realistic pictures are not very realistic, even though they're about psychopaths rather than witches. Mm, right. Suspiria has a black leather-handed killer in it. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that it's very useful, in fact, to collapse that binary because then we can mm. start seeing that they actually kind of blur into each other a little bit more clearly. Yeah, okay. I mean, and you just need to look at, you know, the kind of shape-shifting tendencies of Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Mm. I think that there is something supernatural about those kind no, of yeah, definitely. Without um, doubt, yeah. Fundamentally so, unkillable. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, this, this, are they supernatural or kind of ubernatural? Mm. You know, like these, these really interesting haziness around these distinctions. Yeah. So I guess the distinction with Argento's phases in his career is more stylistic. Like there's one where it's kind of like more kind of Hitchcock based and he's beginning to work with the colour and sound. And then all of a sudden, like I said, Deep Red's that transition film where suddenly it's all about yep. colour and sound. And I think that and that was all... why, I mean, the influences on Suspiria, I mean, it's basically live action Fantasia. You mm -hmm. know, it's, I mean, that's, that was one of his big influences was yeah, like right. The Seven Dwarves. 
And Tenebrae's great. I I love the the pains he goes to to put his victims' heads through glass in that film. It's like don't see he's big on defenestration. I will drag you across this room. Mm. I'm not just going to stab you. I'm going to put your head through the window and then stab. There's great yeah. defenestration scene in uh, Phenomena as well. I'm I'm big on Argento defenestration. Yeah, it's a it's a and cool the, thing. the the one in um Inferno as well. The yep. the guillotine oh, with the window. Yep. Yeah. Um, so Luciano Tuvoli was also the cinematographer for Tenebrae, um, and it's interesting to look at just stylistically. Um, I believe I can't remember if it's Argento or Tuvoli have said that Tenebrae was influenced in terms of its light. It's a very white film, mm. lots of, so compared to Suspiria, that's bright jewel colours. There's a lot of bright white light, or just flat white in yeah. Tenebrae. And um, apparently, Zulowski's Possession was a mm. film that Argento really, really liked and that was something that he was consciously aware of in terms of just surfaces and, and, and the aesthetic, right. um, which, I, I mean, just filled my heart with joy. It's one of my favourite films, so I was really thrilled to hear that Argento was consciously influenced by Zulowski. And I love um, that lots of white spaces in a film whose title translates as darkness. Yeah. it's. I mean, Tenebrae says that very famous crane shot that, yeah. that really, I mean, where would Brian De Palma have been without <laughs> yeah. the inspiration from the Tenebrae crane shot? I mean, it's in a remarkable, remarkable set pieces. Mm. Um, I, I think I, I honestly think it's a, it's an influence on films like um, Basic Instinct. I think yeah. Basic Instinct borrows a lot from Tenebrae, just in terms again dealing with artists. So in this case, a novelist. When does the downward slide begin? Is it was it, it acknowledged? It does not begin here. With Phenomena? Because Phenomena is fucking awesome. Phenomena it is a beautiful It starts film. promisingly. It's got a young Jennifer Connelly. I like the production value. It's got a razor-wielding chimp. Yeah, it's got a razor-wielding chimp and um, a mutant child and this high-octane music anachronistically placed, like, without any thought over these long takes. It's all... Oh, I, I don't think you heard me. It's got a razor-wielding chimp. <laughs> all right, razor-wielding chimp. I'm sorry. It I'm wins. sorry. I love this film. It's so it fucking bonkers. Like, yeah, it is the point. Really it's, joyful. I yes, think it's a really ecstatic absolutely. film. It's it's hyperactive. Yeah. In that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's really ecstatic. It's complete mania. Yeah. Um, almost to the point, it might have broken his brain a bit. And you get the <laughs> feeling that there's a very much an idea to the you know this is the return to the girls' school. Yeah. Um, mm. Suspir- uh, Argento wanted to do Suspiria originally with much younger girls, mm. um, but his yeah, producer said, no, 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 that's kind of, you can't butcher young girls. So mm. if you watch Suspiria, um, he deliberately places the door handles quite high up so that when the female oh, actors wow. reach up, it looks like they're little kids trying to open doors. <laughs> and so you get, I mean, I love that in Phenomena, you get him returning to the, the girls' school yeah. as this mm. sort of site of trauma. And, you know, Donald Pleasance as well, kind of, again, tying into that trajectory of the American slasher, so getting... Um, yes, the American slasher yeah. film had kind of taken off. Donald Pleasance from Halloween, bring him over to put him in the, to this supernatural gialli. I mean, mm. I don't even know what I think. It's I think that Phenomena is a supernatural gialli film, mm. um, and I think that it's the perfect film to show that that there's no distinction. All it's, right, so the downward slide begins with opera. Is well, that right? <laughs> just phenomena. tell me. Just uh, I'm just going to keep naming films. Tell me. <laughs> the downward slide begins Tell me when right? to stop. So we have two. <laughs> we have two years between Phenomena and Opera, and it's definitely worth flagging what happens in there quickly in passing. Yeah. 1985, he does a Fiat ad. In Australia, this is on Good YouTube. God, it's worth looking for. <laughs> it is amazing. It is amazing. It actually looks a bit like who's the guy that did Razorback? I've got oh on. Russell Mulcahy. It looks like a Russell Mulcahy film. And right. I've always felt that Razorback was the Australian Suspiria. I've been <laughs> laughed at a lot for that. But there's something about the visual yeah. intensity the... of it and the frenzy of it. But um, yeah, look, the the Fiat ad, Agenda's Australian <laughs> Fiat ad is. Beautiful. Wow. He also did, and this is sort of the holy grail for Argento fans. It is out there if you keep looking. Um, 
1986, he did a, uh, it was televised, but he did a fashion parade for Trasadi called Action. Um, this had the rumour, there's a rumour circulating it that it's a fashion parade reenactment of Suspiria, which it's not. Mm. Um, it, but it definitely references Suspiria, it references the Giallo film. Models, you know, in le black leather gloves getting dragged off stage <laughs> in plastic blood splattered body bags to Kate Bush. You know, it's, it's wow. an amazing, it's an amazing thing. That sounds great. 1987, he did, he returned to TV again. He did another TV series called The Nightmares of Dario Argento. Most of that's on YouTube. And they're just a short little uh, three minute clips, yep. little mm -hmm. episodes. And that's definitely interesting. All leading up to opera. Uh, see, this is the film that felt the most De Palma-esque to me. Like this felt like Argento. If Dress to Kill is De Palma doing Argento, opera feels like Argento doing De Palma. Like, there's mm. sweeping shots of theatre and, 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 you know, bird, point of view shots of birds coming down on people. There are some great shots, there are some great kills, but this is the one that made me go, oh, we're really just doing the same film over and over. Like, I oh, really right. found it tiresome at this point, I have to say. There's an image in this film that is, like, the, the key image that comes up when people talk about Dario Argento, and even just horror spectatorship in general, which mm. is the protagonist is, has been caught by the bad guy who's got pins stuck underneath her eyes on sticky tape. Yes, yeah. Um, that idea of being forced to watch. It made me so uneasy. I give the mm -hmm. film pretty much a free pass just because it contains that yeah, image. Yeah. I mean, that this, is kind of cool. This yeah. enduring self-reflexivity of Argento's work where it's, it's focused on art and artists and the culpability of art and the pressure or the threat of spectatorship, the violence. I think it's very funny. I think it's mm. very sarcastic. You know, the idea that, that watching could be torture for you. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's really tongue-in-cheek, that image. But it's, I mean, it's one of those images that you leave with. Yeah, you know, oh, it's you, definitely distinctive. One of the great Argento images. Mm. One of the great horror film images, I think. Mm. Like, narratively, it's very ordinary. <laughs> it's, what's with the sound of music scene at the end with <laughs> chasing her through the hills of Austria? The DOP for this was a guy called Ronnie Taylor. Argento tends to work with really amazing DOP. So Ronnie Taylor wasn't a name that I knew straight away, mm. but he um, won an Oscar for Gandhi in 1982. Oh, shit. So wow, he's wow. no slouch. And he came back later and did another film. He's done three with him, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, Ronnie Taylor's a really interesting... Because he never um, really... It's weird. He's so right. dis visually distinctive, but he never worked with the same cinematographer more than three times. Mm. It was always, I mean, Storaro shot Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He worked with us, the same editor um, a lot. So he worked with uh, Franco Fraticelli from Bird with Crystal Plumage all the way through to Opera. Opera was... Wow. Uh, and I... Interesting. Yeah. Yes. I, mean, I, I think that opera, after Opera is where things perhaps, and I think it's a cliche maybe, and I do, I mean, I'm not going to dismiss all of Argento's work after Opera because mm. I think that... One film in sure. particular, I think, is one of his greatest films. Is um, that... Uh, is the Stenthal Syndrome. Stenthal Syndrome, 1996. Yeah. I think it's one of the great misunderstood films in horror history. I think it's... Mm. A, I just think it's an incredibly intelligent film. But, yeah, without Fraticelli, I think that there's... You can really sense it's a change in Argento's work. And I, then I think that is also reflected with uh, uh, trauma because he starts to move towards an American audience, you know, aiming for an American film. He does. And, uh, and so I'm just going to run through some, the, the names of... Of, of the rest of his films. He does um, Two Evil Eyes, a collaboration with Romero. Uh, he does Trauma in 93, Stendhal Syndrome in 96, Phantom of the Opera in 98. At last. Finally gets to that. <laughs> Was it worth it? Um, Sleepless in 2001, <laughs> The Card Player in 04, Do You Like Hitchcock in 05? For television. Interesting, for television. 
uh, Mother of Tears in 07, Giallo with Adrian Brody in 09, and, uh, and to date, Dracula 3D in 2012. This is not a great period. <laughs> between, um, between Do You Like Hitchcock and Mother of Tears, he also did master, He did two episodes of Masters of Horror. That is yes. true. Um, yeah. Jennifer and Pelts. Pelts with meatloaf in it, mm. which is worth mentioning. Um, <laughs> I, I agree about Stendhal Syndrome. I think there is a change of pace here that, that's, that's quite refreshing. But yeah, I did enjoy this more than the surrounding films, I think. I think it's fair to say that his... Uh, output post opera is uneven, mm. and there I'm I'm going to remain demo- uh, diplomatic. But there are some films that I certainly like more than others, mm. and I do think that in some way you do feel this tension between what kind of audience is he aiming for? You know, the films you know, is he making them for an Italian audience? Is he making mm. them for an assumed American audience? And I think that there's a very distinct shift um, in, and perhaps even a confusion at times. I mean, I think that some of his best films during this period, aside from Stenthol Syndrome. Other just the straightforward, not even Giallo films, but proceed almost like police procedural. So things like mm. uh, Sleepless in two thousand and one, and the Card Player. I think the Card Player probably it's not a masterpiece. It's not one of mm. his greatest films, but I think it's a really solid crime movie. There are films that are perhaps not as good as those. Well, ones. I did. Find, I mean, Sleepless. The the end credits start running before the films even <laughs> over. Like someone like bumped a switch with their elbow. <laughs> I and, love the and, end credits of Sleepless. <laughs> I think the thing that disappoints me most about the later stuff is his his sense of visual flair seems to go out the window. Like by the time mm. we get to Mother of Tears and Jalo and stuff, it's like he's shooting on video. There's none of that color or sound. It just looks like another horror director shooting director video. True. Yeah, you do so. You do feel like he's lost something a little bit. Yeah. Although I'm. It's not the fact that he's so willing to put uh, his, his daughter in nude scenes that impresses me. It's the fact that it's always gratuitous. It's like, I find that particularly fascinating. I, I'm really intrigued by the relationship, the professional relationship between Dario and Asia Argento, mm. um, because I think that they, they work, aside from the family connection, I think that they work really well together. Yeah. Um, so Trauma was their first film together, and I'm not the biggest fan of Trauma, mm. but I think there's something really electric going on with her performance in that film. I think yeah. he knows how to direct her. There's a beautiful quote, um, and again, I'm paraphrasing this, but she once said that Dario said that directing her was like playing a really beautiful instrument. Mm. It was like a Stradivarius. Mm, and right. when he works with her, it was like playing a musical instrument that was extremely high quality. And I just thought that was such a beautiful... I'm one of the very few people that wasn't bothered at all by him casting her uh, as the protagonist in a rape-revenge film in mm. The Stenthol Syndrome. I didn't bother me any more or less than anybody being cast in a rape sure, yeah. film. Um, I think I think Stenthol Syndrome is one of her greatest performances, and as I said, I think it's one of his greatest directorial efforts. Because it's all that sort of relationship between art and horror and trauma, and which has run all the way through his career. Yeah. And I think the Stenthol Syndrome is where that becomes the most a explicit. So the Stenthol Syndrome is a real condition where people go to Florence, go to you know the Uffizi Art Gallery. They kind of have a psychological response mm. where they can't tell the difference between reality and the art. They kind of fall yeah. into the art. The story is that the hospital in Florence has hospital beds put aside for tourists suffering. Oh, wow. And that's what film is. I mean, that's what, that's what yeah, Argento yeah. is talking about, this idea of us being succumbed into art or kind of falling into art. And this is a woman who experiences trauma and she's negotiating different kinds of ways that film history has offered her to deal with that trauma. Mm. So the femme fatale, um, the tomboy, mm. you know, the tough girl. Yeah, right. And, and none of them work for her. I mean, I think it's a deeply sophisticated film. I, mm. I think it's incredible. I think some of his other films from this film perhaps are not so deeply sophisticated. Mm. <laughs> I'm not but going he's still to making them. You know what? Look, yes. I gave money on the Indiegogo campaign for the new film with Iggy Pop. 
Yeah. The Sandman. The Sandman. Sandman, and he made apparently Macbeth, according to IMDb. Oh, for uh, it's an opera, is it? Not? Which ah, he'd done before, right. which he'd done in the eighties. Which opera the film is informed by? Yeah. He directed Verdi's Macbeth for the for the stage, and had all this sort of negative experience, and then funneled that into the film, and then returned to directing it again three decades later. Brilliant. But we'll always have Suspiria, won't we? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, Suspiria. That was a good film. <laughs> End on the high note, I'd say. Yeah. He did a fair few others. I think there's yeah. more there's more there's more winners than losers. Dario Argento, I salute you. <laughs> and why not? Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Alex. Thanks guys. And we'll see the rest of you next month. They must be destroyed on site. <laughs>